0: Okay, let's get going. So um, I want to s- start with just a few minutes of um, not uh, meditation per se, but some practices um, to settle the body, um, a little movement awareness stuff, just a few minutes, not too much. Um, and um, it's in in the context of practice that I'm devoting these few minutes to this, even though it's not sort of straight up meditation or mindfulness practice. Um, And the reason I see even these practices that are just explicitly designed to settle the nervous system down, um, to relax certain parts of the body, um, though no guarantees, that'll work, I'm just saying like that's part of the idea Um, is because sometimes uh, we carry tension so consistently in certain parts of the body, whether it be the eyes or the jaw or the lower back, wherever it may be, that um, when we bring awareness, to those parts of the body, like through a body scan practice or just mindfulness practice, we don't actually even see that there's something to notice there. It's just like the background, right? Condition over how body is. Um, We become so habituated to the body being held or holding itself in this or that way. So we don't realize that, oh, that's actually tension. No, that's rather than just how a jaw is you know, or how lips feel, you know, um, or what a tongue feels like, which, I mean, but the why the heck would you ever, you know, bring awareness to your tongue, but, you know. Um, so it, in the way that, for example, you might go get a massage, right? Or do other, something else like body work-like, and f- just your body will feel differently. And then, as is the nature of these things, you'll feel the body begin to reassert its old patterns, its its way of holding itself. But if you hadn't experienced the softening of the experience beforehand, you may not realize that that tension or what you feel in the back or the jaw is actually holding, rather than just how that part of the body is. Um and so these um, practices to settle the nervous system to relax the body a bit, I think are really useful um, for meditation, mindfulness practice because they sensitize us to different ways in which the body can carry itself so that we can see, realize when the body is actually holding tension. Um, that doesn't actually have to be there, even if it's there 95% of the time, you know? Um, so that's uh, that kind of logic behind my devoting these first few minutes to these practices that are designed to settle the nervous system in the body. Um, when in some ways you might say, how is this part of, Zen practice, you know, um, or meditation practice. Um, so that's how I see it anyway. So, um, and then I'm gonna talk, so this, I don't think, I don't want this to take too long. It's sort of like, you know, it's like a warm up. Then my plan um, is to speak a little bit about uh, this idea of a secret practice, the stuff I emailed about, um, and to qualify a bit what I said and just, you know, Hopefully, not take too long with that, but I do want to revisit that topic. Then we'll sit with just straight up mindfulness practice, following the breath, noting thoughts. Then, afterwards, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of teaching and tradition, okay, who a teacher is, and um, my uh, somewhat Vex relationship to tradition authority. Um, so, which I think is one of the reasons why I felt so bad after class last Tuesday. Um, I really haven't felt that bad in a long time. Um, and I think it's because I realized I said things that I don't fully believe. Partly out of a kind of automatic unconscious adherence to tradition of a certain kind, um, and um, and so it's not that I'm actually going to be super clear tonight. I just want to make clear that I was clearer last Tuesday than I actually feel. I think that's really kind of what I wanna what I wanna do is just say where I'm at when it comes to Zen tradition. Um, okay, so that's um. So that's a, a map of the evening. Um, so let's begin. And so they're gonna be some movement. There's gonna be some jaw stuff. There's gonna be, so if you want to mute your camera, um, oh, Audrey's like, oh. Um, so if you, if you want to mute your camera, please do. And also you, feel free to mute your camera. If you're like, fuck, I don't wanna do this stuff. Like, I'm just gonna mute the camera and not do it. <laughs> I just wanna sit. Okay, so um, you don't wanna go along for the ride. Just please feel free to just sit there and show me that you're not going along for the ride <laughs> because like you don't have to do anything um, or um, turn off your camera because you actually don't want other people to see you going. <laughs> okay. So, all right. A little levity never hurts. Right. All right. So um, let's just begin by just getting in a comfortable position, <sighs> settling into the moment. Feeling the contact your body is making with whatever is supporting you beneath you, behind you. Tune in to the sounds in the space around you. Feel the breath as it enters and exits your body. Can you even hear the sound of your breath as part of the open hearing that you're bringing to all the sounds around you? Of course, the sound of your own breathing, perhaps even the subtle sound of your heart, your pulse in your ear. Perhaps you can hear that or just feel it. So, to begin, what I like us to do is to begin rotating our head very, very slowly, very gently, never using force. So, I want to really make this clear. Rotate our head first to the left and then to the right, and back and forth that way, super slowly. And if you feel the neck resist, if you feel tension, don't push it, just go that far and then start rotating the other way. And as you are rotating your head in this way, back and forth, left, right, left. Of course, begin by just feeling how it feels in the neck, the shoulders. Don't move your shoulders, just rotate your head above shoulders that are set, stable. But along with feeling how this movement is experienced as sensation in your neck itself, in your shoulders, begin to explore just with open curiosity how this movement is experienced farther afield. For example, in your breastbone area, in your rib cage, in your belly region. and especially in the low back. So you aren't turning your back at all. So you're not like you're twisting your torso or anything, but can you feel the effects of this turning of the head down in the muscles around the spinal column in the lower back? How far down the muscles that run up and down the spine, can you feel the effects of this rotation? And you might notice that by becoming aware of these effects farther afield, the awareness itself is causing a softening, an opening, or at least some kind of shift in how these parts of the body feel. And just notice that. Essentially, though we are moving, this is just awareness practice. Now, as you continue rotating your head slowly in this way, as the head turns one way, begin moving your eyes the opposite way. So as your head is turned left, direct your gaze to the right and vice versa. When your head is turned to the right, direct your gaze to the left and feel the sensations produced by this contrary movement in and around the eyes and further afield next time you come to position where your head is facing forward let your head come to a rest Now what I'd like you to do is open your eyes and direct your gaze at the screen in front of you. Focusing your gaze at the screen and feeling the effects in the eyes of that focusing. How does it feel to focus on something directly in front of you? And then now, what I'd like you to do is to activate your peripheral vision by widening and softening your gaze, as if you're trying to see both shoulders, or imagine your arms outstretched left and right, and you're trying to see things in both sides of your peripheral vision. How do the sensations of the eyes change from that central focus to the peripheral focus? You can actually do this with your eyes closed as well. You don't need to have your eyes open because you can imagine looking at something directly in front of you like a book or a phone. And you can then begin to imagine looking at something in your peripheral vision and just feel the alterations the sensations in your eyes, the softening of the muscles as you dilate the scope of your vision. Now, please open your jaw very slowly and gently. Open your mouth. And especially if you have a lot of jaw tension, please take care not to do this too fast and not to open too far. And just begin moving your lower jaw left and right, left and right slowly. Again, this is not a stretch, it's not an exercise. This is an awareness practice, just being aware of the alterations in the sensations in your mouth, in your head, and perhaps beyond as you move your jaw in this way. If you notice any tension in your tongue or your lips, invited to release, to soften. And then again with curiosity, how does this movement just in the jaw affect things like your chest, your shoulders, your neck, your belly, your lower back? Okay, come to a rest and then just scan the body as a whole, in a open, gentle way and just feel how the body is doing. Is it different from how it felt when we started? In what ways? Okay. So that's it for this opening practice. Um, I'm gonna speak for a few minutes now on uh, the secret practice, this idea of a secret practice. And I think uh, for a bunch of you who are on the call right at 7.30, I asked you to give some thought to why you practice. What is your intention? When I um, used to go to Sashin at Zen Center San Diego, it was always the first thing that Ezra and Elizabeth asked the Sashin participants to give explicit thought to. They said, what's your intention? Why are you here? And they even asked us to kind of boil it down to a word or a sentence that we might say to ourselves periodically. For example, when we went up to the altar to offer rice, just to remind ourselves, are we here to experience greater connection, to open our hearts, whatever it might be. In my experience, sometimes it feels very clear and sometimes not. So don't worry if you're having trouble um, even finding the words for why you're here. And then now, to revisit Barry Madge's notion of a secret practice, um, you know, the, in essence, what he's saying is that um, you know we have our explicit reasons for wanting to practice, like to become enlightened, to drop body and mind, right? To become one with the ten thousand things, you know, to feel our interconnectedness with all beings, and then there are these ideas we have about what we might want to get out of practice. Like, I want to feel calm. I want to never get angry at anyone else, right? Um, Whatever it might be. And his idea, very simple, very powerful, is that, those kind of thoughts, which she calls fantasies of being cured, curative fantasies, show us why we're really practicing, our secret to practice, um, which is to somehow be rid of certain aspects of ourselves, like our anger, our anxiety, right? Um, our grief, our fear, whatever it might be. And he says, it's really important and difficult to become aware of that secret practice. He's a psychoanalyst, right? So it's like, it's deeply unconscious, these things, right? it's a lot like, I think, what Chogyam Trungpa said many years before about spiritual materialism. And we have all our nice sounding ideas about what we want to get out of practice. But there's also the things the ego actually wants credentials, you know, like um, a sense that we've accomplished something. It's not the same exact thing, but it's similar. It's like we have a certain intention we tell ourselves and maybe tell other people. And then there's like, the other intentions that are deeper down motivating us, Um, spiritually materialistic ones, or as Majid would put it, fantasies of being cured. Um, I think for Majid, the problem is that anytime we have a fantasy of cure, a curative fantasy, we're imagining enlightenment or awakening as being equivalent to the elimination of a part of ourselves. And so how can we ever actually experience our true wholeness, our true genuine okayness, if it requires in some way exiling, right? Cutting off a part of ourselves? And he says, not possible. And it just leads to deeper suffering. So there's clearly a part of me that finds this idea very powerful And I think there is a lot of truth to it. Uh, I wouldn't, I didn't just say it Tuesday for the first time. I said a number of times. I think it's a very, very um, important thought, but I really think I have been putting too much weight on it. Um, And I realize that, you know, I think, first of all, I'll just say, I think our motivations are mixed. I mean, that's a real radical idea. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, like we want to be cured of certain things and that's not so productive. Yeah, and and it's very human. And they are also genuine, deep, authentic motivations while feeling connected with others, connected with our hearts, right? Awakening to our true selves, finding out who we really are. Um, and I think that the risk of putting as much weight on this idea that there is this deep unconscious secret motivation driving us to practice—the risk is, as I put in my email, that we might very naturally become very paranoid about our own motivations because we start to think, "I don't know," <laughs> you know, um, and in some way, by definition, I can't know, you know, whether I'm doing this right. It's like, um, and any attempt to say like, well, um, no, no, I don't, and I'm not, that's not why I'm doing it. It's like, that just be read as resistance, denial, right? I mean, it's like, it becomes a kind of, um, it can become a rather vicious cycle where you just start to distrust yourself. And I actually think a lot of us already have more of that than we really need. (laughs) Um, So, and it's also, so there's that kind of in, in, a, in a way theoretical worry, but it's actually like, it's based on, It's. I think it's just not true that we need to worry in this way because in my own experience of myself and of others, people can see that their motivations are mixed. They come to see it and they come to acknowledge it. And with some discipline, and sometimes with some difficulty, but sometimes not. They are able to move beyond some of those motivations which they realize um, miss the mark, so to speak, that that the practice is not about never feeling stress. The practice is never about never feeling this or that emotion or the aspect of ourselves. That's actually about you know, welcoming in all the parts of ourselves that we may initially want to get away from. I've seen person after person, myself included, but many of you who are on this call now come to these realizations that yeah, I have these mixed motivations. And that is what this practice is about. And I would actually say that if we couldn't do that as part of this practice, then what could we do? We'd be in a way lost. I remember, you know, like that the Buddhist words, dying words, his, his disciples, be lamps unto yourselves, right? It's not like find some authority figure that can help you wake up because you yourself are too deluded and, and full of denial and the self-deception that you're, you're you're lost otherwise, right? It wasn't that. So I think it's actually a core principle of this practice that we have the ability to wake up to the ways in which our motivations are mixed, our desires are mixed. That yes, we have fantasies of being cured, who doesn't? And yet we also have the aspiration to see that and can. So I think it, I worried about the paranoia it could instill in ourselves about ourselves, which I think is not healthy and actually not true to the spirit of practice. At all. And actually, part and parcel with that, create an inflation of the importance of the teacher figure, as if, like, the other person somehow being beyond all those kinds of games can suddenly help us see our own games, right? Um, I think it produces a sense of dependence that's unhealthy, um, potentially, not necessarily, but potentially, in some other figure who can see through our our deception, self-deceptions because we can't see through them ourselves. And I I think I really pretty clearly implied something like that last time. And I didn't want to very much retract that. Um, So it makes us feel sort of dependent and helpless in a certain way, potentially. And I think it exaggerates the clarity of any human teacher you're gonna come across (laughs) Um, as if they are beyond all games. Um, So um, I think along with our fantasies of cure, our fantasies of salvation, we would love to be able to find someone who can save us, but that's not what this path is about. I think, At most, a teacher can be a helpful companion on the way. Someone who in conversation with you can help you see yourself, for yourself, what it is that you need to acknowledge next to be able to grow. That's it. I wanna just bring down to earth the figure of the teacher into the human realm and I think take us out of this like benighted state of self-deception, which I'd cast us into. And so that the teacher is farther along the path and has witnessed in himself, herself, and in students that he or she has worked with, games of all kinds, and because experience can be helpful. But that's very different from saying, they can just see what you can't see. If you couldn't see it, what could you do? So, yeah, I think I just wanted to qualify all of that. That's it, that's it. Um, After we sit for a bit more, I'll say a little bit more about what I think about mm, teachers, transmission, authorization, and my own role as um, know, someone who's doing teaching in this group. Okay. So, um, so um, which also I think is like, I think I was unwilling to say certain things, which is what distorted my own relationship to everything I said. So, um, okay. Let us sit for like till quarter after, okay, 12 minutes, and then talk a little bit more. Okay. All right, cool. So for this sitting, let's just do, I think everyone on this call is familiar with meditation practice. So let's just do dual awareness or whatever kind of mindfulness practice you want to do. So follow the breath, listen to sounds. And if you are in the habit of noting thoughts, then great. And other than that, I will just tell us when the time is up, okay? So, oh, maybe there's one or two people who might be sore in this. Just follow the breath, feel the sensations of the breath. The mind will wander and just come back to the breath, okay, over and over again, gently. Okay. Hmm. While you all um, sort of, you know, take your time coming out of the sitting, I actually did want to say one. So first of all, thank you to those of you who um, have signed the guest book, but I actually want to say something because I'm a little embarrassed. I, it's nice that people say nice things about me, but it's actually not why I started the guest book. I, I don't want you to feel like it has to be at all about, it's just like people, so like people introduce themselves to each other, you know? So, um, so I just, you know, I sort of felt awkward, like people are saying, you know, very nice things, which mean a lot to me and all that, but this is, um, it's just, just, just to be clear that that's not why I, I started it, Um, but feel free to say whatever you want. Okay. Um, But, um. Uh, it's really great to see, you know, people from all over. It's wonderful. Um, and also the people who've moved to town since this crazy pandemic started, I look forward to meeting you all in person. Um, so, okay. W- what I said a little earlier about the teacher, um, you know, having, you know, seen games and, and myself, seen students play games, all like, okay, even that, like, that's still so like partial, right? That's only a small part of what, a teacher does. A teacher also just offers encouragement, you know, supports, um, and also offers. Um, I think in 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 good cases, you know, like a model of how it is to to interact with the world openly and with generosity and care, right? So it's actually, you know, it's not as if somehow, um, you know, deep work on the different kinds of games we play with ourselves and is actually somehow some privileged part of practice it's just a part of it it's just a part where you know we can get hung up on it and it takes some delicate work and all that but even there see i think it just says something about my own kind of twisted notion of practice that i keep going here so i just want you to know like so you're you're seeing something about me i'm basically like revealing okay so um okay so um i want to say a little bit about revisit some of what I said last time about teachers, authorization, Dharma transmission, all of that stuff. Okay. So um since this group began and geez, I don't know, Carrie's email made me wonder like 2018. Um I've I've made a point of emphasizing that I am not a teacher. Um and um and I said last week a bit about gave some background to why I've been saying that um, and, and um, but, you know, like actually I've had conversations with Ezra recently um, where I even, you know, said, you know, I don't know whether how, you know, I don't know how much I have to offer, whether I should even keep the group up and, you know, um, and, and um, he said, I and I'm, you know, I'm not a teacher. And, um, and he said this, I'm just going to, you know, just, just pass this along because it's just, it says you're not, you are a teacher. You're teaching the group, you are a teacher. You're not just, you're not a teacher with a capital T like in the, in the Zen tradition says, but you're obviously doing teaching, right? Um, and for some reason, even right now, it's very hard for me to say this. Um, I don't know why. Um, and, um, and so I am not a teacher with a Dharma transmission. I'm not um, authorized to be that kind of teacher but I guess it seems perverse probably to some of you to say that I'm not teaching, I'm not doing some teaching here, right? Um, and Ezra also made it clear that it was totally fine for me to talk one-on-one with people about how their practice is going. Um, he said that's what he did for years before he got um, official Dharma transmission or authorization from his teacher, Joko Beck. And so um, I think I, I'm saying this, um, Not because, I guess I'm saying this because I also worry that people would think, oh, this is some kind of like second rate group or some like um, not official group or something. I don't know what this is, but I got to go find a real teacher, you know? Um, I mean, basically I was saying like, I'll help you go find one, right? I mean, so, um, and so I think what I want to say is like, there are a lot of things to get from tradition, which I'll touch on and uh, teachers who are authorized in that traditional way. And especially, I think one of the most important things you'll just get the whole traditional context. And I I may not have time to touch on that tonight, but I will some point in the future. I myself am the product of many years of very, very traditional training. And I can speak to what one gets out of that, but I very intentionally left it behind. Um, And I'm not interested actually in, in, if I wanted to be part of that, I could. I mean, I made a decision after living at a, a temple for a number of years that I didn't actually want to continue in that on that path where I think the idea that my teacher had at that point was that I would become a scholar of Buddhism and a priest and help run the temple when I got older. You know, this was the idea. Um, I'm actually really glad I didn't become a scholar of Buddhism. I think it would have destroyed Buddhism for me if I became too scholarly about it. And I being like being kind of like, we're an amateur about it, um, and um, so I guess what I want to say is, if people want to hang out in this group um, and talk about practice with me, I'm happy to. Or not talk about practice with me. I'm ha- that's that's wonderful. Or or find it um, a more kind of you know traditional um training center. I'm also happy to help with that. And if you do that, you're always welcome to come back and sit with us whenever you want. It's not, this is, there's nothing. So I think, I think I just worried that I get this impression, like you died. I can't talk to you. I'm not allowed to or something. And that just seemed kind of weird. Um, so I just wanted to backtrack on that a little bit. God, I feel really awkward saying any of this. <laughs> just, I So, um so anyway, okay. Enough said. Jeez, I want to get, I want to move on. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay. So I'm not beyond insecurity. <laughs> I've not been cured of my own self-consciousness or insecurity, clearly. Though, man, I'm a lot better than I used to be, let me tell you. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I think that the so part of the context for all of this kind of mixed upness that you're hearing, both like the combination of last week and this week, is I think that my relationship with tradition is very much in flux. I actually think the relationship with tradition in American Zen is very much in flux. I don't I don't think I'm unique in this way. And I think that and I don't it's like so, and I'm not clear on how I feel about tradition or where I think tradition should go, what it'll look like. Um, I think a lot of people are taking different Approaches to it. Some there's even, in fact, researches of hypertraditionalism. Greg Snyder at the Brooklyn Zen Center has opened a very, very traditional monastery um, uh, down by Millerton uh, in, in in New York, like um, just uh, you know the southwest corner of Massachusetts, just on the, on the other side of the state line there. Um, and he clearly thinks that maintaining a very, very traditional form of monastic training is important. Um, I have no desire or any reason to think he's wrong. It's just not my way. That's it. That's, I think that's the most I would be like, it's just, it's not a way that I'm interested in pursuing, even though I got a taste of it and got a lot out of it. And I can see why people would benefit a lot from getting their own tastes of it too. Um, you know, I think one of the things that, um, was kind of amazing about spending the years I did at the temple is that not every single thing you did, but a lot of what you did was carefully scripted. You know, I mean, just like to take the moment you walk into a meditation hall, you always step over the threshold with your right foot, never the left. You bow when you enter, you never walk counterclockwise in that space, right? Um, when you face your your meditation cushion, you bow and you turn again clockwise around. Bow to the the rest of the room and then keep turning clockwise and sit down on your cushion. Um, you bow in certain ways. You know, at the end of the bow, you cross your feet, right? You raise your hand in a certain way. Um, I also then tended the altar. I rang the bells for the services. I did everything. Was carefully scripted. I'm the one who woke people, I woke up at 4.45 in the morning, right? Did nine bows to the big temple bell, rang it, folded up my mat in a certain way, went up to the zendo in a certain way, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, space in between the parts of but a lot of it is carefully choreographed. And the beauty of that kind of formal training is that, So many moments where in our regular lives, we have to decide, huh, do I want to eat that cereal or that one, you know, (laughs) or do I want to, you know, um, heck, like, I don't know, like everything really, like we have to decide almost everything. I mean, a lot of things we do automatically anyway, but like, you know, there is like still the possibility of choice all over the place. It's kind of overwhelming. (laughs) And in a temple, a lot of that is just taken away. And, um, and so, you know, the self can sometimes rebel and say, I wish I didn't have to do this, but it just, that's a thought. And you come back to the form. The form can hold every form of thought and feeling resistance that might come up. And you know what the next thing to do is. And I think it is kind of amazing, the experience that you can get of moment by moment, subsuming the ego in his constant desire to decide what to think and do to what the form demands of you at that moment. So I think it's a beautiful training. I'm glad I had it. I wouldn't be who I am now without it. That's why I would never say one shouldn't do and these places shouldn't exist, Um, not all. But again, it wasn't for me. And I'll also say that, One of the reasons why I'm not incorporating many forms into this group is because um, I'm not sure how those, that kind of training fits into the lives we actually need to lead in the world. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not saying, this is not like a way of saying, I think they don't, I'm just not sure. You know? Um, And it remains an open question to me, like um, how the traditional forms of Buddhism should or will evolve and change. Of course they will change as they continue to make their home here um, in the West. And I feel like, you know, it's just like, um, I, you know, I hate to use this like analogy, cause okay, I'm not going to, it's gonna think it's like, you know, like a virus mutating, but like, I'm not gonna say that. It's like, so any, like, you know, it's like there's just a lot of different mutations happening, right? I am very likely a mutation that will just die off, you know? And that some other form will probably like be the one that's evolutionary, like more successful in this. I'm a little bit of an outlier in my complete like all um, lack of investment in traditional forms, and I'm not—I have no principled reason for falling. The path. it's just—it's just me, and I think it may just be that I just never got over my teenage rebellion to authority, <laughs> you know. Um, so um, I literally left the temple because I couldn't imagine s- myself as a representative of an institution, you know, of a, 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 a like a church, you know. Um, so. I'm a little bit rogue, um, a little bit of a individual in that way. But you know, there's a there are other other people like me, you know, um, and I you know I think of as models for my path people like Tony Packer, who left the Rochester Zen Center after getting Dharma transmission, derobing, giving up almost all the traditional forms, and still feeling like the essence of the practice could be preserved. Or Joko Beck. Doing the same thing. I as Ren Elizabeth, neither of them think of themselves as even Buddhist, you know. Um, they just they practice Zen, you know, and and it's a f- sort of version of interfaith kind of practice. I actually think I, I call myself not exactly Buddhist, but I don't what I do makes no sense without the history of Buddhism. It's like I'm just like I'm part of this this evolving tradition. So I so anyway, I am unsure of how all well this goes. And I think I just want to say that, to acknowledge, and that may explain a bit about why I've been so like weird and waffly and like sort of, I don't know, you know. Um, but I think I just want to come clean on where I stand with all of this. And to say that if you're cool with, and you are interested rather, with um, having conversations with a teacher with a small t, a very, very small lowercase t about practice sometime, I'm available. I think part of me frankly was a little wary of, of opening the door to this because like um, I have a lot going on (laughs) but at the same time um, I'm here. And this is actually the most important thing in my life. So I think that that actually like when I talked about Joko and I talked about Tony Packers, like all of them felt like the essence of the practice could be preserved. And I think, I hope, I think the people who've been here For a while, know that even if what I'm saying is true, that I'm ambivalent about tradition, not so committed to it, um, though not against it. um, I'm very, very devoted to this path, and in certain ways, kind of like hardcore about it, you know. Um, But it's a it's a mushy (laughs) hardcoreness. So, um, okay, enough. God, like so much me, 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 sorry. (laughs) But I felt like, you know, kind of like where I am also kind of affects like, you know, what we do. So I think I want this, like, it's not like it's like just, you know, it's like, it's part of the group. So anyway, but I promise not to get into like weird confessional mode all the time. Okay, so enough. Okay, how about we sit for one minute to wash ourselves of this, like, ego, <laughs> drama, <laughs> and then, um, then we can say good night. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, <clears throat> so just one minute. Hmm. You know, I just want to end with the lines that we say at the evening, every evening at in San Diego. Um, we say that every night it's a sheen, every, every night after the evening sitting, and you'll know why, there's just good lines, okay? Um, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Life as it is, the only teacher. I think we need friends on the path, community, mentors, peers, but ultimately it's life. And I think as long as we stay awake to what life is teaching us, we're going to be okay. So thank you all so much for just being here. I'm really, really grateful for you all. Um, Thank you, Bernie. Thank you guys. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bernie. Mm.